Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Is it possible for anyone to experience something so meaningful, so significant, so climactic, that everything changes? I'm talking about an encounter, an experience that marks time in someone's life and everything thereafter is different. Is it possible for anyone to experience that? I read about a nightclub promoter who was living a fast and fancy lifestyle fueled by drugs and alcohol. One afternoon, yes, afternoon, she woke up, turned on the TV, got ready for work, and heard a news story about underprivileged kids in her own neighborhood and was crushed by the relative emptiness of her life. She stopped right then and there, quit her job, and dedicated her life to an entirely new career of launching a nonprofit to help those kids out. I'm thinking of my friend's dad from when I was growing up. Unhealthy and obese at age 40, he suffered a massive heart attack, made it through surgery, and survived. After that, he went on to lose over 150 pounds, completely changing his exercise and eating habits because he didn't want to lose his wife and kids. Is it possible for anyone to experience something like that? One thing that changes everything? And if so, what if it was merely a conversation? What if it was just a sermon? What if it was simply worship? It was exactly that for one woman one day around noon in a town called Sychar in Samaria. Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. You have to know two things about those two sentences. First, Judea was the southern region and Galilee was the northern region. It's like Judea was South Carolina and Galilee was Virginia. Can you picture it? In between those two sits Samaria, exactly like North Carolina. You got it? Now, to get from South Carolina to uh, Virginia, you got to pass through North Carolina, right? Well, you don't really have to pass through North Carolina, you see. You could, if you wanted to, double the length of your trip, head into Georgia, drive north into Tennessee before turning back east into Virginia, completely avoiding what's in between, North Carolina. But why would anyone do something so foolish unless they absolutely had to? That's the second thing you have to know. Every Jew who wanted to travel back and forth between Galilee and Judea would unquestionably and unreasonably take the long route out of their way around Samaria in order to avoid Samaria smack in the middle because they hated Samaritans that bad. John tells us in his gospel that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Most Jews just had to go around Samaria, but not Jesus. He had to go through Samaria. We didn't have to physically. No one was making him. No one was holding a gun to his head. But Jesus had to pass through Samaria, and John's gospel shows us why. And so the least likely person could encounter something greater, 
than anything they had experienced before, something that once they encountered it, what was so meaningful, so significant, so climactic, that everything in their life changed. And it's something that you and I also encounter weekly, even daily, yet sadly, it's something we take for granted, even though it's greater than anything we could possibly experience. This is the word of God in John chapter four. So Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about six hour, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. For the last five weeks and the next 17 weeks, we are in a sermon series called Beloved. We're going through John's gospel, and so I need to point out to you one incredible feature of John's writing. It's the details. John constantly is dropping details into the story that might seem irrelevant or unconnected to you and I, but there's a reason. The details are there to demonstrate that this is an eyewitness account. In other words, John is saying, I experienced this. I saw this thing happen. And so, John tells us when the disciples' 14-passenger van pulls off the highway into a town in Samaria, Jesus was tired, the disciples were hungry, and it was noon. In other words, listen, the time matters. It's the hottest part of the day. The Middle Eastern sun was roasting everyone. Anyone with any sense stopped working, stopped their journey, and would sit down in their tent or next to a well. Except for the social outcasts, too embarrassed to come to the well at any other time or with any other people because she would endure too much shame for broken marriages and her affair. John tells us it was this lonely hour that a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Think of the most diametrically opposed groups in the world. This is greater than the New York Yankees versus Boston Red Sox. This is bigger than political differences or racial tensions we see today. Jews and Samaritans were bitter enemies. There was vicious racism mixed with discrimination and topped off with revulsion. They didn't even talk to each other, much less use the same water fountain. And get this, not only did the Jews not associate with Samaritans, but a Jewish man engaging in a conversation with a Samaritan woman? That was doubly taboo. But Jesus is bigger than all that. He's greater than that. And so while he asked her to give him a drink, the one wearied had every intention of strengthening the one to whom he spoke. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? I get it, modern readers, we might jump all over the Samaritan woman. 
Of course Jesus is greater than your great, great Old Testament relative Jacob. Don't you see he's trying to give you the gift of eternal life, a gift that only he could give. But that's the whole point. How could she know? No one could have known who they're talking to. Even Jesus recognizes that, and that's why he piques her curiosity the way he does, masterfully turning the conversation from the physical to the spiritual again and again. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty again and have to keep coming here to draw water. Her practical reply would be comical if it didn't miss so badly what we know to be the point. She says, yo, give me some of this water, man, so that I never have to come back here, that I'll never get thirsty again, and I won't have to carry these jars a mile here every day. It's hard. It's hard for people who have running water in nearly every other room in our house to walk a mile in this woman's shoes. But Jesus, who came to take the place of every person so that he might give to all who believe the thirst-quenching, soul-satisfying water of eternal life? Well, he did much more than empathize with this woman who no one else dared come near. Jesus turns the conversation from the physical to the spiritual and then to the relational. He does it seemingly out of nowhere. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Can you imagine this woman? Wait, how did you know all that? Who are you? She can't even deny it. She doesn't even want to. She openly confesses not only her sin, but by acknowledging that Jesus is someone great, she says more. What she says next is one of the most powerful confessions of faith in Scripture. Listen to her immediate reply. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. You might be saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Jesus just called out her sin, that her thirst for lasting happiness led her into a whole mess of sexual sins. And what does she do? She completely changes the subject. She changes the subject from her sin to questions about worship. Get a nice try, lady. And... Nice try, pastor, for saying this is some great confession of faith. That's not what she's doing here at all. She's not trying to take the spotlight off her lifestyle or distract Jesus with a question about worship. No, no. What she's doing is admitting she's finally starting to get it. She knew she stood before a prophet. Little did she know in that moment she stood before the prophet, priest and king, Jesus Christ. But what she did know is that she wanted to get forgiveness from God. 
Her question, where to worship, was essentially the question, where can I go to be cleansed of my sins? Where can I seek God's mercy? Where can I go to worship him? How do I know this is the way she meant her question? It's because Jesus answers her question in a direct way that marks this moment in this woman's life and everything hereafter would be different. Jesus answers her question about worship and for the first time since they met, they're talking about the same thing. They're not talking past one another, but the conversation becomes as clear as water. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I I who speak to you am he. Is it possible for someone to experience something so significant that everything in their life changes for eternal life? This bad Samaritan woman was changed into the first really good Samaritan because Jesus freely and fully gave her the greatest gift, faith. Faith in him as her savior. Faith that her sins were forgiven. Faith that welled up in her to eternal life. Look, the least likely person encountered someone greater than anything or anyone she'd experienced before. Someone who made everything in their life change through his word, which he gave the gift of faith. And it was merely a conversation. Call it a a short sermonette. Is beautifully simply worship. And yet, worship of Christ Jesus in spirit and in truth. And this is what I need you to hear. That everything can change. Everything does change for you when Jesus comes to you. You encounter and experience the same Jesus who gives you the same powerfully life-changing gift of faith and forgiveness in his name every time you hear Jesus speak through his word. Or any time you hear his word in a pastor's sermon or anytime you worship him in spirit and in truth. The Samaritan woman, in her we see a reflection of ourselves. We have no right to talk to God because in a worse way than any racial rift that separated Jews and Samaritans, we're separated from God. Like that woman, we have a backstory we're not proud of, a lifetime of sin where we've tried all sorts of things to quench our inner desire to be someone, to find love in all the wrong places, to find significance in all the wrong accomplishments. And our sins mean we don't get to walk with God or talk with God, and that's the truth. Any denial of that makes us just as blind and just as oblivious to the holy God we encounter and in whose presence we worship, like the woman before her eyes were opened and she saw that Jesus was the Christ. Here's the facts. In worship, through God's word, through water and word, through bread and wine, Jesus comes to you. He speaks to you and he offers you living water of eternal life. By believing in him, you are drinking that water freely and fully. 
And that means your conscience can rest, our doubts dissolve, our selfish pursuits, all of those things for real life and a full life that we're looking for are replaced with the realest and fullest life that anyone could have in Christ. And it's all because we encounter in worship someone so meaningful, so significant, he changes everything in our life and our eternal life. He gives us the gift of God, living water of his word. Sometimes it's merely a conversation. Other times it's just a pastor's sermon. But you can and you do encounter and experience Christ every time you worship him. Every time you worship him in spirit and in truth. So we need to answer that. What does Jesus mean when he says this? The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What is spirit and truth worship? Well, it's a question of massive consequence and importance. It's something you and I need to understand because Worship is where we encounter and experience Jesus giving living water, God's gift, so meaningful, so significant that everything changes. So let's break it down. What is and what is not spirit and truth worship? True worship must be in spirit, that is, engaging the whole heart. It's nothing else than what God meant when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's wholehearted worship. It's letting go of your need to feel perfect and to compare and have it all together and instead fill the stillness of the soul, the joyfulness of a heart that comes from spirit-given faith. Yes, I'm talking about feelings, but true worship that is in spirit, it's not an obsession over feelings and the emotional experience of worship. Because if there is an obsession on emotions, Well, there's a danger that as soon as the emotion is over, the worship ends, like it did for Pete. Pete grew up in one church most of his life, a church that ignored Pete's heart. And so the first chance he got, Pete found a church that obsessed over the emotional experience in worship, and he loved it. The only problem was it only engaged his heart. Pete's worship lacked truth. When he was at worship, he felt close to God. I remember one Sunday talking to Pete, who told me he had never felt closer to God his whole life. His worship experience gave him that. All the feels, the thrills, the chills, and it felt good. But worship was the only time he did feel good. When he wasn't at worship, or it wasn't immediately after worship, Pete was miserable. He would never feel good enough because he never knew the truth of whether or not he was good enough. His good vibes and good feelings never lasted. And because he never got the truth in worship, Pete was always looking inward on himself for his truth or any truth because he never found what he was looking for. And he wasn't, when he wasn't miserable himself, he was mean towards others. And he believed this all started because of worship. Worship that is spirit without truth worship is a shallow, overly emotional experience that is like a high. As soon as the emotion is over, when the fervor cools, 
Worship's done. You know, what Pete lacked was worship that was also in truth. That is worship that engaged his head, his mind, call it whole-headed worship. Worship that looks to and is centered around the source of all truth, the word of God, to teach people a proper understanding of true knowledge of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ, that he has given to us living water, faith, and forgiveness, that worship, that is worship that is in truth. But worship that is in truth does not obsess over external actions, do the right rites, the correct ceremonies, do this, do that at all these right times. See, because if there is an obsession on external actions, there's a danger that worship is a passionless event and it leads to joyless rule following, checking boxes, and a legalistic attitude. Like it was for Nora. Nora was proud about how much truth she knew, at least compared to all those people who didn't go to church or go as often as she did. You see, her worship lacked spirit. When she was at worship, she thought a lot about God, about what he said, about what he did. The only problem, it seems, is that that's the only time Nora thought about God's truth. Because when she wasn't at worship, she was massively proud of the fact that she had been at worship. And that meant she was always looking down on others. I remember the one time I asked Nora about reaching those who were far from God, she scoffed. She dismissed the idea of sharing her faith, her faith experience with anyone who didn't follow all the rules she knew so well, check her subjective boxes, because, well, while worship had the truth, it lacked feeling, any spirit. Can you believe it? All this started with worship. Worship that was truth without spirit was a passionless event that led to a compassionless life. That's why Jesus said, you have to have both. True worshipers, Jesus said, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. You can't have one without the other. It's wholehearted and wholeheaded worship together. It's worship that is neither obsessed about my emotions or my actions, or really even obsessive about me at all. Instead, is worship that obsesses about Christ alone and his actions. And when that's your obsession, how can it not positively affect your spirit, your emotions? You have life in Christ. You see, when there is an obsession on Christ alone in worship, there's a certainty that God is glorified and you are edified. What I mean is, when the focus is on Christ alone, God is praised. Then he is worshiped. And when the obsession and the focus is on Christ and his word, then the living water we gather around at worship, his word, well, it's ours. And you can feel close to God because truthfully, you are close to God. Look, you want to know where Christ is? He's in his word. He's in his body and blood. And therefore, worship for an hour on Sunday is not the only time where you can feel confident that you are near God because of his promises in his word that he's always with you, because of his promises in your baptismal waters that you are always a part of his family, whether you're in worship or not, you can be and feel incredibly confident with who you are in Christ. And that truth frees you. It frees you to feel, feel concern and compassion for others. 
And now, now we're starting to sound a lot like the Samaritan woman. Did you see what she did? It's merely a conversation. Call it a short sermon. And yet it was worship of Christ that was in spirit and in truth. But the bad Samaritan woman was changed into the first really good Samaritan because Jesus freely and fully gave her the greatest gift, faith, faith in him as her savior, faith that her sins were forgiven, a faith that welled up in her to eternal life and everything from that moment in her life, what was changed, including the way she saw others. The woman who came to the well lonely and with no one ran to go get everyone. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Is it possible for anyone to encounter someone or something that changes everything? It was for one woman one day around noon in a town called Sychar in Samaria. And then it was for the whole town of Sychar because they experienced and they encountered in Jesus and through his word, well, they came to believe in their savior, the savior of the world. What if it was merely this conversation? If it was this sermon, if it was simply this worship that changed everything for you, Everything, sins forgiven, faith strengthened, a new lease on life. Look, I can rhetorically confidently ask you this because throughout this sermon, I've been trying to pour on you the living water of God's word. And so what if it was just this sermon, simply this worship that finally moved you to drop everything, to drop your excuses, to drop your fears, and to go to someone else so that they too might experience the water God gives in his word, and in them, a spring of water would well up to eternal life. All because you said, come and see. Is it possible for anyone to experience something like that? Something that changes everything? It is. You know it is. The other day, someone said to me, Pastor Matt, I noticed that a lot of your sermons end with an encouragement to go and share the gospel with other people. What's up with that? I just nodded and I said, you're right. And you want to know why they were right? You know why it's true? It's because of what we see in John chapter 4. Jesus, true God and yet true man, he's weary. He's tired from his journey and all that's going on in his life and ministry. And yet he's never too tired for others. He's never too tired to share good news, the good news with others. He's never too tired to reach out to those who are far from God, those beyond reach. And I get it. Some of you are four years into this church startup, 
four years into being a part of a church plant, a church that demands more of you, a church that expects more of you, a church whose mission and ministry, quite honestly, with all the other things I know you have going on in your life, well, maybe it it can make you grow weary, like Jesus. But you got to remember that Jesus is the only Savior, and he is the Savior of all. Christ's love for us, may it move you to feel deeply, passionately for those who still don't have living water. May Jesus' relentless pursuit of you move you to set aside excuses and prejudices and initiate conversations of spiritual nature that turn mundane talk into matters eternal. But people are thirsty. You, Christ beloved, have water that won't run out. So go. Amen.